Hey, good morning. <laughs> uh, what, man, what a great day already, right? Um, and just so, so amazing to, to hear uh, corporate worship. Uh, sometimes you guys are singing for people like me who maybe have had a tough week and, and need to hear uh, the words of Scripture sung, right? There's just something that happens in it. And, um, yeah, it's, it's good. I, I haven't had a hard week. I'm sorry. I shouldn't say that. But sometimes there are people in here that want, uh, that, that have a hard time singing because of their week, and you, sometimes you're singing for them. That's kind of what I wanted to say in that. Uh, so today I want to hone in Romans chapter 1. This is our third installment in the book of Romans and uh, we're kind of getting into the guts of Romans now, uh, right into the middle of it. And I'm going to hone in on verses 14 through 17. I have Brian read 7 through 17. Uh, but the six verses before 14 through 17 are significant, um, but the most significant part, uh, really, almost of the whole letter of Romans is what we're looking at today. Um, so, so significant that many commentators think that the next eight chapters of Romans are about unpacking these verses. Um, so in the first six verses or so that Brian read, we hear about Paul's specific burden for the Romans, right? Uh, for his call, uh, for his secondary calling on display. First, his calling to the Lord, as we talked about in week one. And second, his calling to spread the gospel uh, specifically uh, in places like Rome. Um, and the other, the other piece of the conversation that we, that we hit on today is the Jew-Gentile conversation. Uh, there's going to be almost an entire, ch- actually entire chapters devoted to that conversation later. So I'm actually not going to hit that today, and I just wanted to let you know that. Uh, so with those two caveats about kind of Paul's specific call to Rome and then the Jew-Gentile conversation, I want to dig into Romans 14, 1, 14 through 17. So let me read just really precisely those verses for you, and then we'll dig in. Paul says this, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, it, the, the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, and he quotes Habakkuk 2 here, the righteous shall live by faith. One of the things that strikes me uh, about this passage is this idea of shame. Um, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. At first glance, I thought, you know, how could you be ashamed of the gospel? It's the best news on the planet. And then I did a quick word study on shame throughout the scriptures, and it actually shows up in the Bible a lot, right? And you know why it shows up in the Bible a lot? Because it shows up in our lives a lot, right? It is arguably the first human emotion expressed after sin entered the world. Shame. For Paul to mention that he's not ashamed connotates that it is incredibly possible, if not probable, to feel shame not just in general, but about the gospel. And uh, thus to, to not know the power that, that it truly holds when we feel that shame, as Paul says. And so today I really want to explore that. That's really where I want to go. So, I, you know, shame's a heavy topic. Um, so I want to tell you a, a little bit more of a lighthearted time that I felt shame that really led to some ripples in my younger years of life. Um, I was in the fourth grade playing tackle football, Okay. So there, there's this scene for you. I wasn't great, but, man, I tried hard. You know what I mean? Uh, I was a cornerback, uh, meaning that I played defense and I attempted to guard the wide receivers. 
Uh, and it was kind of a place that guys uh, who weren't that good played in fourth grade because I don't know if you've watched fourth grade football, they don't throw the ball a lot, okay? And there's a reason for that. And so, um, <clears throat> you know, uh, and, and when, they, when they did, when they did throw the ball and I did have a chance to tackle a guy, I was like just kind of a little awkward. I would, I would try to project where the guy was running and I would go all out like this, but he would like be running this way. Was, I would just keep missing him, you know, it was just kind of embarrassing for me. But there was this one glorious day. There always has to be that day, right? They were in the red zone. We were backed up against their goal line. We were trying to play defense on them. And there it was, the ball in motion toward the wide receiver in my zone. This was my time. And so there it was, the ball comes to me, and I leap up with all of the height of an English bulldog and grab the ball. And it is, if you've watched much football, most of you have, this is, you know, the amount of people that watch football down here is really interesting to me, right? I came from Kentucky down here. It's everybody. This is a general, I can, I can blanket statement. It was going to be a pick six, friends, all right? I'm, I'm, I'm in the, I'm, I'm like on the goal line. I pick it. I am running. Everything is going great. I am blowing past them until I get to the 50-yard line. And I began to experience something absolutely terrible. Now, <clears throat> it, it wasn't that I was starting to fumble the ball. Uh, it, it, it wasn't that I was tripping over my feet. But friends, it was far, far worse. I began to experience the beginnings of a uniform malfunction. <laughs> See, I was a little guy. <clears throat> the little guy and the padded pants were heavy. And the belt wasn't feeling so tight anymore. <clears throat> and my pants literally start slipping. And before I know it, they are nearly around my ankles. And so I do what any of you would do. I start pulling up my pants and running like this. And, of course, you know, that's, that, that, that's troubling for my efficiency. And so the team starts to catch up with me. And I'm thinking, okay, here we go. This, this, this is going to go one of two ways. Either I'm going to get in that end zone and no one's going to remember my pants. Or I'm going to get tackled and that's all they're going to remember, right? Those are the two scenarios that we're in. And I would love to tell you that I scored a touchdown that day, but I did not. And from that day on, my, my youth sports career, there was this, this a certain amount of shame that covered me. Um, and, the, you know, that exposure of weakness and everything that went into that moment before that huge crowd of people uh, in Mercer County, Kentucky, on the five-yard line. And it, and it began to... Uh, um, and my inability to make that play happen began to shape the way that I related to youth sports. It left a mark on me nearly all the way through my high school career. And, and the interesting thing was, is that I, I was the kid who felt like on the inside anyway, I was always trying to run a pick six with my pants around my ankles, right? And it's funny, but those moments shape you. You have moments like that in your childhood that have shaped you. And they typically involve moments of shame. And shame is, when, shame is almost always related to some moment of exposure of weakness that you are tempted to handle on your own. Shame. That's what I want to explore today. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, which means that he must have been ashamed of the gospel at some point in his life. So in the garden, 
God gave us this description for the freedom of me being known by him. In Genesis 2.25, he says that Adam and Eve walked in the cool of the day and they were naked and unashamed. So, somebody's giggling about that, that's funny. <laughs> naked and unashamed, exposed before, vulnerable before the Lord, unashamed. One of the first human emotions expressed before the fall hits us is that we are unashamed. It's the way we were designed to live. And it's because they were living by faith in God's word and God's design in the garden, and it led to this shameless vulnerability. And I know you're thinking, hey, come on, pastor, don't drag this out of me today. I don't want to talk about shame. I don't want to get in my feelings today. Just teach me some good Bible, right? Um, But but here's the deal. My prayer today is that we might learn to locate shame, uh, acknowledge it, and experience real power, the real power that the gospel is in shame. It doesn't say that the gospel tells us about power. It doesn't say that you can find power through the gospel. It says the gospel actually is power. And the gospel is power in our shame. Because here's the thing about shame. The less we talk about it, the more control it has over our lives. Right? The less we talk about it, the more control it has over our lives. So here's our big idea for today. The gospel is power because it undresses our shame, you like that metaphor, and clothes us in righteousness. It undresses our shame and clothes us in righteousness. If you're a note taker, I'll tell you kind of where I'm going today. I've got four uh, kind of big points that I want to make, and the third one's probably the biggest of them. Uh, We were designed to live by faith because of our union with God. So faith was the design from the get-go, even before the fall entered uh, the, the conversation. Number two, sin has led us to place faith in self instead of God, and it's thus produced or planted in us disconnection, shame, and unrighteousness. Those are the things that we feel about that disconnection, things we experience. Number three, the gospel is power in light of this because it undresses our shame and it clothes us with righteousness, a real covering. And number four, we become more and more eager to reveal that power by living by faith in Jesus. Okay, so let's dig into that first point. We were designed to live by faith because of our union with God. So this passage of Scripture talks a lot about faith. <clears throat> Those nine verses or so mention the word faith, pistis in the Greek, five times. And it seems like faith, for most of us, is a, a post-fallen construct, and what I mean by that is that we feel as if we were supposed to be able to do it on our own, life, obedience, all that, but now we have to do it by faith, right? I mean, that's the way it feels. That's the way it feels, and that's why we have so much shame around the gospel, because you're like, man, I have to let Jesus do it for me because I'm so broken. And that's the way it feels a lot of times in Christian community. Um, faith, for most followers of Jesus, feels like a functional crutch that we'd rather not have, um, and he, Hebrews 11.6 and verse 1 say something interesting about this idea of faith. Hebrews 11, it's, the, it's the, kind of a hall of faith, a story of faith. Um, says this, without faith, it's impossible to please him, to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must first believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him, right? 
And, and then he goes on, and in verse 1 before this, before it sets up the whole chapter, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, kind of the definition of faith in the Bible. So in other words, he's saying, the writer of Hebrews is saying, it's never, ever, ever been possible to be righteous before God, to please God, or to be in union with him apart from faith. Faith is not this post-falling construct that we got to bolt on now because we couldn't do it on our own. It was always by faith. I like how the NIV translates this verse better. It's a little more accessible for me. It says, now faith is, is, is the confidence in what we hope for and the assurance of what we do not see. The confidence of what we hope for, what God's promised us, union with him, and the assurance of what we do not see, that it is going to happen. Now, in the garden, Adam and Eve enjoyed God's delight in their lives. And how did they do that? By faith. The scripture says they walked with God in the cool of the day. And at this juncture in the story, there was no opposition to their faith. Uh, and, and, and faith in God was the way of life in the garden of Eden before sin entered the world. So what do we mean by faith? What is biblical faith? A lot of people talk about faith. There's a lot of songs about faith, right? What is biblical faith? Well, here's, here's the first thing. Biblical faith is always a gift from God. It's never something you produce on your own. It's always a gift that comes from the mouth of God, from the word of God, from the hand of God that he gives to us. And it is a divine persuasion of sorts for us to trust that his word, that we can be confident in his word, and that our future uh, is, is, is one of hope because of confidence in his word. Now, the Bible calls this idea saving faith. Everyone lives by faith, but not everyone has saving faith, right? Um, we've always been saved by faith because it's impossible to please God without faith. I love what Kurt Thompson writes. He's a medical doctor who's written a series of books about, uh, about uh, the soul. And one of those books is called The Soul of Shame. Uh, for the most part, I think I can endorse a lot, most everything in that book. It's a great book if you're someone who struggles with shame. One of the things that he writes in there is this. We were invariably made for faith. We were designed for faith. And that is to operate out of a need to trust something that we cannot control. And that is our, it just happens to be our greatest nightmare, right? To trust something that we cannot control. Everyone throughout all of time has had faith in something and based their lives on the object of that faith. This is why so many of our stories before we met Jesus are all these other kind of uh, cloaks that we tried on. It was, you know, job performance or athletic performance or, or, or our studies or our, or our spouse or our relationships or, or, our, or our own personal appearance. All these other things that we tried on to give us life, but they failed us. Um, so here's the thing. Sin, number two, sin has led us to this, this place of faith in self instead of faith in God. And, and, and thus it's produced disconnection, shame, and unrighteousness among a whole host of other things, Right? Uh, so when sin enters the world, mankind is persuaded that God was not the pr appropriate object of faith. Uh, that, that self is more trustworthy uh, than God. And hey, we're going to spend the next uh, three weeks talking about this. So I'm not going to do a deep dive on that 
today. But this, this fall from saving faith uh, deposited, among other things, an eternal disconnection in our lives from our maker. Uh, and the, the dissonance of sin led us to be unrighteous, unable to live out God's design on our own, and, and, what, and, and what that birthed in us, among other things, was shame. Shame, uh, because of our dis- disconnection first with God, right, that is now stemmed to our relationship with others. Um, shame is always um, revealed or experienced in the context of relationship or lack of relationship. Uh, that's one of the key things for us to understand. Um, we were unashamed because of our close connection and union with God in the garden, but now we feel shame because of the disconnection that sin has birthed in us and our lives of hiding uh, that we've been uh, on, on the journey of pursuing, right? And so, um, and so at every juncture of shame-infused sin that you and I have acted upon in our lives, it all started because the object of our faith is off. It's not saving faith. And that's where shame is birthed. We need saving faith to be granted to us. And as Ephesians 2 says, it's a gift from God so that no one can boast. And the object of that saving faith is Jesus. Jesus is the one that's come to give himself for our lives that our faith may be restored. I love what 1 John 5 says, verse 4. He says, for everyone who's been born of God, and what he means is everyone who's been born again of God, right? They've been given a new heart, new spirit put within them, overcomes the world, And notice how he says we've overcome the world. He says this is the victory that's overcome the the world. Our faith. Our faith is what overcomes the world in us. Our saving faith, our our divine persuasion that Jesus is actually our Savior and is now the object of our restored faith is gifted to us by the Holy Spirit regenerating our hearts and making them able to believe once again. This is the victory. Your faith is the victory. It's the victory that overcomes all of our shame. And you may be here to say, uh, you may be here today and say this, you know, well, it doesn't feel like victory right now. Anybody? Right? You want to be honest enough? It doesn't feel like victory right now, pastor. And that may be well and true, But in time, as Romans will teach us, the victory will not be just something we long to experience, but it will be our experience. Romans 8 will say, we are more than conquerors. And how are we more than conquerors? Through faith. Through faith, not by might, not by walk, through faith. And this is why Paul says in Romans 1.17, our text for today, for in it, for in the gospel... The righteous, those who belong to God and do the things he requires, the, right, the righteousness of God is revealed to us from faith, for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So this righteousness says this, you cannot and will not ever be able to, save, be, able to be saved by God while simultaneously standing on and trusting your own ability to make it happen. The two can't happen. You can't have two different foundations. In fact, Isaiah 64, 6 says this, all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. So all of our own ability, even in our best efforts, and even in the the, the highest applause in the world, are still 
filthy rags. That, that word is actually a really graphic word. That means It's the same word used for a menstrual cloth, if that gives you a graphic there. It's a, it's a very graphic image of what it looks like to trust in something that's so unable to cleanse us. Faith, it takes faith for us to really base our lives on the fact that for all eternity, the single most important thing that we can do is to actually believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that he has done what he has said he has done. And that in and of itself is power. That's the amazing thing about our walk in Jesus. Now, now, now we got to get to shame now that we've looked at faith. Because Paul is thinking about shame. He's thinking about his own, own shame. I even read through the book of Acts, some selections of that this week, and I looked at all the places that he talks about his prior way of living. And it's because he's thinking about the shame that's associated with that prior way of living. He's living as a forgiven man of God, but there is still shame associated with behavior that's come from our lives. And shame is a byproduct of misplaced faith. It's where the enemy leaves us when we trust him instead of God. It's an emotion that's produced through a sin-wedged disconnection in relationship with God. Shame exists because a relationship with God is possible. That's the beauty of it. The only pl- in, 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 in a similar vein, the only place that shame can be healed is through that relationship. It's the only place we can find that healing. Shame is... Uh, it's kind of a it's kind of a junk drawer term for what sin leaves us feeling like, right? It's 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 the humili- our sense of humiliation, it's our sense of inadequacy, it's our sense of embarrassment, it's our sense of foolishness when it comes to how we feel about our past and even current sinful behaviors in light of God's standard and design. It's it's what you feel in that disconnection, and that's the one goal of shame is disconnection. It's to isolate you and to make you deal with the consequences of your sin all on your own. And this is why, friends, it is so hard to confess our sins and especially confess our sins to one another where we can find healing. Because shame has tremendous power and has been a great tool of our enemies since the Garden of Eden. So I just want to pause on that for a second. What is it in your story that causes the most feeling of shame? Go there with me this morning. If you want to experience the power of the gospel, go there. If you don't want to experience it, don't go there, right? I mean, that's, that's what the scripture teaches us. We've got to bring it into the light. What is it in your own fallen nature that you just deal with alone? And in dealing with it alone, you experience tremendous shame because you are so disconnected from God and from others in whatever that, that uh, experience is for you. What is it that you are terrified of others knowing about you? No matter what it is, I want you to know this. You are not alone. The enemy wants to convince you that you are alone. And the only place to handle this is to white knuckle it and hide it and hope it never comes out. But friends, it always does. If not in your life on this earth at the end of time. There is no such thing as hiding for all eternity. That's not a category for us as image bearers of God. And, and the thing that I want you to know about this is that it's not only for your own personal sanctification and holiness that this matters. One believer living in shame affects our entire body. One shame-filled soul living in isolation and hiding affects everything that New City Church is. 
Because we are called to walk in the light as he is in the light. And the more of us who are consistently experiencing the dynamite, the dunamis power, as Paul says, of the gospel that brings us into the light and covers us and heals us, the more profound the witness and the greater the expression of faith that goes forth from this church, the greater our witness. So let's talk about how to experience this now. The gospel is power, the news about the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf in our place for our good and our salvation. Is power in and of itself because it undresses our shame, it invites us to undress our shame, and it clothes us in righteousness. He doesn't leave us naked, friends. He clothes us with his perfect righteousness. And, and so with our shame, here's where we are. We either acknowledge it or we don't. But there, there is no such thing as a life that shame hasn't touched. Because there is no such thing as a life that hasn't been disconnected from, from, from our Savior, from our Lord. And so Paul has this shame too. And, and it, we're going to listen to him tell a little bit of his story. Um, listen to the urgent regret surrounding what he did as a lost, zealous Pharisee. And, and what he did to followers of Jesus initially. You know, do you, do, you think, do you think that he doesn't wish he could take back the stoning of Stephen? You know? You think he doesn't wish he could get that one back? Maybe he could have been saved before that? Now, he knows that he's lost in that moment. He doesn't condemn himself, but I know that he feels shame around that. So what's he going to do with his shame? He says that he's experienced power. And the definition of power for Paul is gospel. And that has led to the him to this shameless vision for his life. And he says this in Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the fact that I was so bad that God had to send his son for me. I'm not ashamed of the fact that I can't add one thing to my life on my own. I'm not ashamed of the fact that he had to do it all for Paul. The Pharisee of Pharisees. I'm not ashamed because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To confess he's not ashamed must inherently mean that it's possible to have shame about the gospel. And here's the catch. Until we experience the gospel as power and as power over shame and sin, we are still in some way ashamed of it. The gospel is not news to just be talked about or to talk at others with, but it is news that touches your heart and it changes you forever. That's where the power is. And it's news that in and of itself is power. And how is it? When did the, the gospel become power for Paul? When it stripped him of his own righteousness is when it became power. When it undressed all of his filthy, rag, righteous deeds. And the gospel, this is, this is the thing, the gospel must first undress our pose before it can clothe us in righteousness. It's got work to do in us. And this is why Paul's going to spend three chapters kind of undoing all of us. And it's going to be super painful. And I wouldn't even want to go there if not for the good news, right? But for the sake of the gospel, we're willing to be undressed by the gospel so that we can be clothed in his perfect righteousness. Because when we're ashamed of the gospel, we're still trusting our fig leaves, our different poses to get by in this life and to cover our own vulnerability. And the gospel is powerless until we're willing to be laid bare before the Lord. Some of us, some of us have 
chosen to be laid bare before the Lord. Other, others of us have been like Paul, haven't we? We've just been laid bare before the Lord. We've got no choice in it, right? Maybe you've had that kind of Damascus Road experience. Maybe you've been publicly caught in huge sin. Maybe you've been privately caught in huge sin. Or maybe you've just been on this trajectory and people have called you out. No matter what it is, to be undressed by the gospel is really good news because it means that you can actually be clothed with something that will cover you. Listen, listen to just, just a little bit about who Paul was as he was on the way. <laughs> he thought he was on the way to persecute Christians. He was on the way to meet Jesus. Saul, still breathing threats. And I don't even know how you breathe murder, but he was breathing it, all right? Against the disciples of the Lord. He goes to the high priest, and he asks him for letters. He's drilling down to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, the way of Jesus, the name of the church, men or women, he's gone off his rails, right? He might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So before the gospel becomes power in our lives, we cover up anything that doesn't match the story that we want to project. We just kind of shove that in the closet. We are unwilling to talk about our fears. We are unteachable in our pursuit of righteousness. And we have this endless array of fig leaves, this closet full of fig leaves to cover our shame with. And this could be that we're afraid of confessing things that we're addicted to, that we're afraid of acknowledging how, our, 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 how broken our relationship to whoever the person is. Uh, that we're afraid of telling others how alone we feel in this world. And all of those pursuits of filling that void. Friends, the gospel will not be power while you're hiding. It will not be power when you are hiding because you are standing on your own righteousness. The gospel is light. And it is power. And it is the end of hiding for us, friends. That's the power. That was the power for Paul. What would your life be like if you no longer had to worry about hiding and covering up your shame? What would it be like? I can tell you what it would be like in one word. Bold is what it would be like. Because when you have nothing to fear and you've got nothing to hide, you're living found out, you live boldly. And you desire for others to experience the power of a shameless future. The only way to channel the power of the gospel is through vulnerability before the Lord and others. Because that is the only place of bold dependence for the people of God. So what's Paul like after he experiences the power of the gospel? Here's what happens is Paul learns, as Romans 10.3 says, to submit to the righteousness of Christ. Did you realize that the righteousness of Christ that God wants to clothe you with in Jesus is actually something you have to humble yourself and submit to? Because you can't build, you can't be covered up with your own righteousness and Christ's righteousness, right? So Paul was learning how to submit to the righteous covering of what Jesus has done for us. And here's, here's, the, here's this great description of what he's like now. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, it's probably my favorite passage in the New Testament. Uh, it says this, so to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation. He's having some amazing quiet times, all these revelations, right? And he says, like, I'm getting conceited, right? I'm, the old Paul's kind of creeping up. He says, a thorn was given to me in my flesh, a setback, maybe an illness, maybe a, a, a reoccurring sinful temptation. A thorn is given to Paul, and it's, it serves as a messenger uh, of Satan, as Paul experiences it, to harass him. Uh, to keep him from being conceited. And he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. 
Hey, hey, Lord, my life would be better if Satan didn't tempt me all the time, right? And all of us could agree with that, right? My life would be better if there was no temptation in this world. But then Jesus responds to him and says, Paul, you don't know what you're talking about. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power, that's the same word that's used in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, my power, the gospel, is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that I can have the power of the gospel in my life and it may rest upon me. I may be clothed with it. He says, for the sake of Christ, then, I'm, I've learned to be content with, with weakness, with, with insult, with, with hardship, with persecution, with, with calamity. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. Then I'm experiencing the power that the gospel is. So for Paul and for us, the power that the gospel is, is appropriated and channeled through our bold acknowledgement of weakness and our functional faith that the righteousness of Christ will actually clothe us. That's where Paul's learned to channel the power. The power of the gospel for us is contingent upon actually allowing ourselves to be weak before Jesus, to be undressed, to be vulnerable, to, opening, to the opening of ourselves of possibly being hurt among other people, right? A question I often ask is this, are you weak enough to be saved? A lot of times we think about, are we strong enough to be saved? And we think about when we experience insult, and we think about experiencing calamity, and we think about experiencing hardship. That's the junk drawer term for experiencing fall, the fall in this world, right? And it's associated with, with all these temptations to have shame and do it alone. He, he, he says, I'm content with those things because the righteousness of Christ has so clothed me that I no longer have to have fear, that I experience power through my weakness. So where are you weak right now, and where are you tempted to clothe it with something other than Christ? That's the question for us, because that is the place where you're going to have the opportunity to experience the real power that the gospel actually is. Boasting all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me, Paul says. The power of the gospel is displayed in our lives when we trust and believe that he can handle our weaknesses. What would it look like for the gospel to actually be power for you today instead of news about power for that guy over there? What would it look like for you to walk out of here today and say, I'm experiencing the gospel as power in my life today? I guarantee you that it is related to the places that you are tempted to hide. And someone, and so here's what, here's what the gospel does. Colossians 3.3 3 talks about this is that Jesus actually invites us to hide in God instead of from God. Isn't that an amazing thing? That's where the power lies is when we learn to run to God instead of from God because we see that he's always been coming to us. we got to start with Jesus, allow the safety of his grace to undress our false poses of righteousness and experience his power as he clothes us with his own righteousness. And lastly, we become more and more eager to reveal that power by living by faith in Jesus. Now, this is the place that most of the time this sermon starts right here. 
Um, come on, don't be, don't be ashamed of Jesus. Go out and tell the world about him. How many witnesses of Jesus witness about Jesus from a powerless pit? Right? You, you, know, you know the truth? is when you are experiencing the, the gospel as power, I'm not going to have to tell you to go tell people about it. You're going to be like Peter and John in Acts chapter 4. Do you, I love this story about them. Peter and John, they're like, hey, y'all can't tell people about Jesus anymore. They call him in. They kind of slap him on the wrist, slap him around a little bit. And, and what, what do they say? Peter and John answer them, hey, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, because we've been listening to God. I'm just going to tell you that. You've got to judge but here's our story. We can't help it, guys. We cannot help but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard in the gospel. When you experience the gospel as that kind of power, evangelism ain't going to be a problem. Evangelism is a problem because you don't have the power of Christ. And so my heart for you is that you would trace back, you would learn to, to, to trust the Lord enough to trace back through the shame that you experience in this life and experience the gospel as power as Jesus Christ clothes you with all of his good deeds, all of his righteousness, all of his forgiveness, all of his grace, therefore making you in right standing with the one true God for all of eternity. And when that happens, you will be a shameless witness for Christ. The gospel message in and of itself, friends, is power. It doesn't talk about power. It doesn't say that it could be power. It is power. And he says the essence of this power is that it exposes us and it lifts us up out of shame. We're no longer ashamed. And I want to close with a story about this. Robert is a pastor friend of mine in Lexington, Kentucky. And, uh, you know, this past week, Queen Elizabeth passed away. And, and he had the uh, opportunity while on a tour to the U.K., uh, to, 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 uh, to tour Parliament, and he, and he uh, had kind of an inside track, and he asked uh, about a story about the Queen that maybe was not familiar. And it goes like this. Uh, he says this, every legislative session begins with a visit from the Queen, and it's this regal tradition. She wears her crown and robe and, and uh, processes down a hallway lined with her guards, and they literally strike the stone walls with their swords to make sparks fly. It's just, just amazing experience. And the hallway ends at the House of, of Lords where the queen takes her seat and essentially commissions the legislators to enact the will of the people. He says this, but however, several years ago, because, because of the queen's declining health, uh, they had to break the tradition. Instead of using the staircase to get there, they started using an elevator, a lift. So the first year they chose to use that lift instead, a terrible mistake was made. The lift operator, uh, you know, gets on with the queen and accidentally selects the wrong floor. And so rather than the entrance to parliament with the queen and all of her get up, uh, going up to, to endorse, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the will of the people uh, being enacted, he presses the button for the maintenance floor. And so... The doors open up, and this lady named Alice from the cleaning crew, she barrels in with her cleaning cart and pins the Queen of England against the back wall, and the doors close. And so here's the situation. You got the lift guy who's just blown it. He's like, my career's over. You know, you got the Queen pinned up against the back wall. She's like 80 at the time or older. And you got Alice with her head down in her cleaning cart holding it against the wall. 
The doors close. Everybody realizes what's happening. And there's only one person in that elevator that could ease that tension, right? Or everybody else is just, I mean, they are hosed, right? And so the silence is broken with the uncontrollable laughter of the queen. She just lets out this roar of laughter. And rather than opening the doors to let Alice off, the queen asked the lift operator to take them down to the proper floor. The doors open, and to everyone's shock, Her Majesty the Queen and Alice the maintenance worker walk down the aisle side by side. And it gets even better than this. Once a year for the rest of Alice's life, she was invited to Buckingham Palace for high tea with her new friend, the Queen of England. It's a beautiful picture to me because in our shame, King Jesus has done this and much, much more. He lifted us from the embarrassment of our shame and our sin and he chooses now to not only dwell with us but to dwell in us and to abide with us and he calls us friends. And this is where the power is. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.